the uh, content the last couple weeks i worked 12 days straight i don't know what you want from me but today <laughs> that actually paid off for us because here we are sitting here on a wednesday on a wednesday what am i even talking about here? <laughs> on a wednesday night ready to put out a new podcast and what comes over the hollow no i was gonna say the hollow that's i'm gonna subspace yes. comes over subspace the subspace radio, but we find out that Star Trek Discovery is picked up for season three, which is great because it's in the face of uh, all those people online who are saying uh, this show is not cool and we don't like it and uh, Discovery is never going to go on ever again. Well, we're proving you wrong and we're going to talk about that and the Sounds of Thunder, that episode of Discovery. But before we do, we're going to introduce ourselves. My name is Matt. Coming to you from Austin and coming to you from Houston is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. First, I must consult the Prime Directive. What did it say? Is it okay for you to go on? Is it okay? We can push forward? <laughs> I know, I I'm not sure our, our listeners are warp capable. That's a good point. Now, wait. If we're not warp capable and they're not warp capable, what does that mean? I guess we can go forward then. Let's do it. All right. Yay. So, uh, great news. Discovery's coming back for season three. It's funny because I've seen so much stuff online, uh, not today so much, but just, you know, in researching the show and looking up reviews and all of that stuff. I, you know, the reviews have been great for the most part from the show, too. It's just this weird, very loud contingent of people who say they're Star Trek fans who say that they don't like this series. You know, they continue to say that it doesn't fit within what we already, I mean, the timeline. Let's, we, we can, the timeline that's fine but you know they're saying that it doesn't feel like like star trek that it doesn't uh, look like star trek and it's not the trek that they know well ken how dare they you being a star trek fan one for many many millions of years what do you have to say to these crazy people i think people become too committed to their nostalgia too committed to like what they remember about Whatever, Superman, Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, you know, those early, you know, records rather than the later ones, whatever it is, you know, you know, you discover something and there's that special feeling of, wow, this is really cool. And maybe not everybody knows about it. And then. You know, later on, someone decides to redo it or do it in a new way. And they're like, oh, I got to be a purist now. I got to put on my hipster, you know, thing and grow a goatee and, you know, pretend like I'm in Brooklyn and go, oh, that's just so unacceptable. And, you know, if you think about it, for thousands of years, we've been reading Homer, reading Gilgamesh. Reading, you know, Livy, Aeschylus, 
And if somebody puts it on new and does something interesting to it, doesn't try to put on, well, this is this is how it would have been performed, you know, in 476 in Athens. Instead, you know, it has them speak English rather than ancient Greek. Has them maybe in modern clothing or in a modern situation. There's that Hamlet where they like put them in an office building. I think that was Christ, Christian Bale. Was that? Mm. I don't. Mm. Know, I don't recall who was in it. Uh, but you know, we we've been going over the same material over and over again, right? That's that's how it is. We know the myths. We start making references to I don't know Apollo, and people don't go who. I, I'm only interested in the new content. Mm-hmm. Right. Why, you know, is it impossible for people to just go, oh, there's there's new stuff. There's a new twist, a new take. It's been advanced. It's been developed. You know, some of it I'll like, some of it I won't. But the stuff I don't like, I'm like, eh, I like this other thing better. But this is good because this is still Star Trek. I'd rather have more Star Trek than less Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, always. And, and frankly, I, I'd be happy if, if uh, you know Paramount, CBS, whoever didn't own the copyright, and the fans were putting out their their own Star Trek, even yeah. though you know I'm sure if that was the case, a lot of it would be but that's bad acting, that's bad writing. I'm not even sure I enjoy watching it. <laughs> but more is always better than less because tastes differ. And you know, while I may watch a particular web series of amateur Star Trek and go, yeah, not doing it. Another one might delight me, and for some other person, the first one might delight them, and the second one is like, eh, it's too political, it's too, uh, you know, intellectual. Like the difference between kind of classic Roddenberry Trek and JJ Trek, mm-hmm. right? Roddenberry Trek always kind of veers off into the cerebral wants to deal with big ideas, and J.J. Trek is action-adventure-y, right? And I don't think there's anything wrong with having both of them. In a sense, there are two takes on this, a similar set of characters and a similar set of circumstances, and it's good that there are Roddenberry episodes that are action-adventure. There were certain elements of action-adventure, like the ticking clock, which, of course, we'll get another example of in this episode, Mm -hmm. that Roddenberry was a big fan of. You mm-hmm. don't just put the showing the ship in crisis. You have to add a ticking clock, right? It's it's a formula with Roddenberry. He did it all the time. Yeah. And you know, so there are certain elements of if even Roddenberry Trek that are action adventure. And well, if someone wants to develop that and and give us a run of action adventure Star Trek, I say that's fine. I may not enjoy it as much as one where they all sit around the conference room and you know do those ethical quandaries about whether or not the creature they found is is uh, a monster or a sentient being, or how would we tell, or if it was and it had done these other things, what does that mean? Those are great. Yeah. But I understand they're not necessarily for everyone. If they want to see, uh, you know, Kirk and the crew running around and jumping over fire, whatever, let them do it. You know, it's funny, too, because I feel like it's like it's whatever it is that people aren't finding, you know, this to be Trek. It's like I I can't like it's not one idea that they don't like. You know what I mean? I did hear somebody, you know, one time, you know, point out that they just feel like 
it just doesn't look like Trek. There are too many bright lights. There are too many, like, and I'm like, and? Like, so? Like, who cares? It's a different ship. It's a different take on the, as you said, a different take on the material. Why does that even matter? I feel like, as far as it goes, I, here's another thing I was suspecting that what it might be, is the arginess of it. Like, people just aren't used to their Trek being arc. Even though DS9 did a little bit of arc, uh, even Voyager played with the arc a little bit. I got maybe that's what people are feeling like. Star Trek should just be episodic. You know, everyone's now pointing to people who don't like Discovery are pointing to the Orville, you know, and saying like, now this is what Trek, you know, is like and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, they're just doing, you know, original trilogy next generation. You know, that's what they're doing. It's a it's a monster of the week. It's a planet of the week. It's a so. Is it the arc then maybe that's knocking people down and don't is that why they don't like discovery? I guess they hate stories. <laughs> right? I mean I don't boy. I don't know we can have more than one. Yeah. I don't understand why like you wouldn't like having more story, having more things going on unless like you're watching it while you're so busy you can't pay attention but I'm like what kind of fan is that? <laughs> right. Like I, I can really only hand my attention span is only good enough for one because I'm raising the kids and I'm cooking the dinner and I'm feeding the dog and I'm frankly in the backyard half the time anyway. So I come in and I'm like, who are these people? What are they talking about? I thought this was an episode about you know uh, Ensign Tilly being lost in the thing, and now I'm it's all this other stuff. I don't get it. I also think too that we are hitting the the star trek notes you know oh, what i mean yeah. i feel like we're, we're we're all the themes and ideas and all of those roddenberry things that we've talked about you know in our analysis of the original series is all in this so again yeah. it's just i don't know what people are pointing at to say this isn't my trek and that's what they're saying this isn't my trek they're they, this isn't star trek is not really what they mean they're like this isn't my trek this isn't how i choose to believe that the show is Right, and, and that, that's fine. I mean, in the sense that, you know, when I would watch, you know, both. I think I had this with both DS9 and Voyager. There was a certain kind of, well, you know, I there's no Enterprise. They're not kind of discovering, you know, it's, there's no... Uh, you know, there's that five-year mission or the continuing mission of the original series and Next Generation, right? Right. And I, I miss that about both DS9 and Voyager. Now, not so much that I'm like, I can't do it or this isn't my Star Trek. I mean, those things are going to put those series in a, like a lower category of if I could only watch one, what am I going to watch? But I don't have to watch Twan. And there are episodes of DS9 that I think are fantastic. Mm -hmm. right? Just great, great Star Trek. And the same is true with Voyager. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't give those up just because there's no ship named Enterprise and they're not on missions that are primarily about discovery. Right. And I'm like, let's, you know, let's have a variety. Let a thousand flowers bloom. Exactly. All right. Well, I feel like we may have uh, ranted and railed enough about this. Uh, we love Discovery. I think it's a great Trek. And again, more Trek, the better. Uh, I think another thing a lot of people were pointing to as far as the uh, 
you know, why CBS All Access might get rid of Discovery is because of the Picard series coming up. You know, because basically what CBS is trying to do is be like, what can we give people that will keep them subscribing and not let them like like me? Or was like, okay, Discovery's over, click by, you know, I'm done till Discovery comes back. So, you know, now in April, you know, Twilight Zone's on. Uh, one of their big sellers is football. So football's coming. And so then people were thinking, well, we can just have Picard take the the Discovery slot. But indeed, no, sir. No, sir, I say again, we instead get both Picard and another season of Discovery. And well, I think that that's well, great. When your series is 14 episodes long or you know, even 20 episodes long, there's room for both. Yeah. Because at some point, you know, unless you have some like, let's pile them on top of each other. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you run your 14 episodes of Discovery, you get a couple of weeks off and then you run your, uh, you know, 14 or however many episodes of the Picard show. And then basically you're looking at the new season, you know, you take a couple of weeks off. And then you you can basically be looking forward to the next Discovery season. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. You know, it's not it's not like they're doing the it's not like the school year, right? Where it's nine months. Yeah. Right. And you know, old TV used to be like that. Old TV yeah. used mm-hmm. to basically run from September to May. Yeah. And these these shows don't, and so there's no reason that we can't have both because, frankly, you know, fourteen plus fourteen is twenty eight, right? Mm-hmm. And at that point, we're kind of back in the old, this is how long a TV season used to be. Right. Yeah, exactly. The original series had, what, 26 episodes a season? Yeah, it was more than that. I think it was like 27, maybe. Seven? Yeah, I mean, so. Yeah. And, of course, who knows how many episodes they'll do with Picard. But, yeah. you know, and <clears throat> last season, I think there were more Discovery. Were there not? Was yeah, there I wanted to. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, but even still, there's there's pl- there's plenty of weeks for both series to run, mm-hmm. and in, in one sense, when one goes off, having the other one come on is natural because you keep you, you don't click you don't say well I'm done I'm I'm clicking off, I'm not subscribing anymore, you stick with it all year, and then maybe you watch some old Mission Impossible, <laughs> just to fill the gaps. <laughs> Just to see some Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's jump into it. Uh, this week's episode, The Sounds of Thunder. This, of course, is... Uh, do you know this one? Do you know why they named this one The Sounds of Thunder? No. Don't worry. I got, I got your back on this one. It was. Uh, it's named after the Ray Bradbury short story of, uh, you know, close to that same name. It's the one that uh, introduced the concept of the butterfly effect. You know, we kill a butterfly in the past. You know, what changes will it mean? You know, if it falls out of the the bats of its, you know, the bats of its wings causing this or, you know, the food, the the one thing that didn't get to eat this now dies and doesn't have progeny. What does that mean? So the idea of seemingly insignificant actions snowballing into importance, which is exactly what this episode is. Uh, In some of my review reading, a couple of people made the point that. Had the Enterprise not shown up here, there wouldn't have been no crisis. But the Enterprise only showed up here because the Red Angel showed up here. So what does that mean? Blah, blah, blah. It's an interesting thing that we can uh, maybe get into as we uh, jump into this story. 
So I love how at the beginning of this episode, it, it automatically entwines Saru's journey with Dr. Culber's journey, right? You know, Dr. Culber's dealing with the idea that like, oh, you know, this isn't perhaps the same me that came out. And Saru on the same in the same page is like, okay, I have this new side of me. I don't fear as much anymore. Is That's what has always made me. Now, who does that make me? And so right away, we get these two, uh, you know, going through the same thing at the same time even in the same place. It's weird. We don't get a lot of Culber in this episode. He's in like two scenes. He's there to basically make that connection to further that story and then disappears completely, you know, for the last like 30 to 40 minutes of this episode. So we get a little bit of Culber and we'll get to him uh, in a minute, but uh, let's stick with the main story here of, Going back to the Kelpian homeworld of Kaminar, as we saw in Saru's short trek, the name of which I had in my head, but it's just fleeted away. <laughs> Bye-bye. But, you know, that was a great episode, and we really love that one. Uh, also, a nice, interesting behind-the-scenes note, they actually filmed that episode and this episode at the same time. Makes, Makes sense. sense. You got all those actors, all of the, you know, the makeup effects being in that set or on that set where if they filmed on location, all of those things makes complete sense that they would have filmed them all at the same time. We find out a little bit more information history, if you will, uh, about what happened after Saru was taken up by the Federation. We find out that the, that the Ba'ul are actually warp ready they figured out how to do it. So, of course, the Federation then moves in and is like, uh, hey, we're warped. You know, we have warped, too. Let's uh, become friends. And the Ba'ul are basically like, no, go away. We don't like you. We got our own thing going on here. Just leave us alone. So the Federation's like, okay, dude, whatever. It's fine. So in the story of Saru, of course, we get uh, we, we're starting to see some interesting changes happen to him. Uh, now, without living into a fear, he's much more of a forceful presence. This uh, pays off towards the end of the episode when we find out uh, Kelpians, after their Vahalani, Vahali, Vahali, I have it written down later. Uh, you know, what that makes of these, they make them much more of a uh, predator species, which is interesting. Because that's uh, not the way we thought this was going to spin. But it's interesting how early on when Pike's, you know, handing out all the orders and everything, Saru really, like, literally steps up to Pike and is like, no, I think I should be going on this way. And here's why. And here's what I think, why you think you're stupid. And another thing, Pike, you know, blah, blah. It takes um, takes Burnham to step in and kind of cool the heels there on, on old uh, Saru. So what do you well, think of this? Go ahead. In part because she backs him up. Yes, well, I guess that's true. What do you think of this uh, Saru, this new Saru, this crazy, forceful dynamic? So uh, Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, wrote that, you know, there was nothing more formidable than a postmenopausal woman. Because, you know, the, the amount of estrogen goes down. The testosterone comes up, but at the same time, they have a lifetime of social skills and they have the network that that women have built over a lifetime. And so you'd have, on the one hand, all the skills and network of of women, 
now with the aggressiveness and, and you know, willing to, um, you know, stand up a little bit more, let's uh, say less agreeableness, right? Okay. Than, than younger women. And I think in a sense, this is Saru's experience, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's now capable of, and it, it's kind of, because it's science fiction, dialed up, you know, to 11. But I think that's what he, that's basically what it is, right? So he was like a, you know, 16 year old girl, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the sense that, that, uh, you know, he was tentative about asserting himself and now he's very forceful. So that's what I think the, the transition is for him. Yeah. I like that. That was good. Back when we watched the short trek, uh, you and I discussed the idea that maybe Saru's father was hiding something more than he knew about the Baul. I would have assumed that information would have been passed on to uh, Sarana, Saru's sister, but if there is more information, we see, don't seem to get it, and she certainly doesn't seem to know anything about the Baul because she's certainly buying into the whole idea of, like, we got to keep the balance going, so... I was like, that's a sad thread, I think, that, that they may have lost. But that's okay. So we got to talk about the Prime Directive, obviously, because uh, there's a lot of tiptoeing around it, uh, almost to the point where they're like, and get out of the way, Prime Directive, let us do our thing. You know, uh, at the beginning, Pike even says, like, I'm willing to stretch the, you know, the order number one prime directive, but I don't want to, uh, let's not break it. But then that all changes as soon as, like, Saru ends up on the planet. He's telling his sister all about, like, what happens after the the Valharai, the Valharai, the Valharai, you know, ends. And he's like, I've done it. Look at me. I promise this is really a thing. And, you know, even so much that by the end of it, you got Tilly and you got Burnham, you know, working together to basically, you know, like, okay, well, hey, we're just going to let everybody now go through the Valhari. And uh, I don't know. That seems to me like a way overstepping of the uh, prime directive. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They are. uh, They are totally intervening. It reminds me of of. uh, The most striking episode like this is the. Is it the first? Yeah, it's the first season, I think. Episode, the one that has the actor who played Kirk's son. And oh, it, uh-huh. at first, they just think they have a disease, and Crusher can't find the disease. And then she realizes, oh, they're addicted to narcotics that are being supplied by, you know, the, uh, you know, the other planet, because that's their only production, uh-huh. right? All you have of value is this one product that's a medicine that uh, cures the disease, and they make everything else you consume. This is this is bizarre. Oh wait, you're you're their they're their dealer. Yeah. And you know, on the one hand, Picard is like, no, we you know can't intervene. And Crusher's like, we have to intervene. And so you know, here you have more people who are, in a sense, I think, you know, not under the kind of control of, of Pike that the Enterprise crew was under the control of Picard. Yeah. And it really was just Dr. Crusher who is like, hey, this is crazy, Mm -hmm. right? You know, it's not like it was Crusher, Riker, and Worf, right? Yeah. And they they start doing stuff, and, you know, Picard's like, do I discipline my, you know, three officers or, 
You know, I mean, they've, they've got a point. It's, you know, it's serious to just. Right. I don't want to write the report on this one. <laughs> Whereas I think, you know, Pike realizes he's, this is their ship, right? Yeah. I mean, he's there to look for the Red Angel, not necessarily to take Saru, who's the first officer, and Burnham, who's another commander, and, well, obviously Tilly's an ensign. <laughs> she's yeah, barely yeah, yeah. on the scale. <laughs> she's she's like uh, the young Riker who accidentally joins the captain on the Pegasus, and is like, oh, man, I'm not sure this is a good call. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it was interesting that, like, Pike never, and I like your reasoning of that, of, like, he's like, oh, I'm still, like, a guest on this ship in a way, uh, but it's still his mission as well. I think that some of it is just hand-waved by the idea of, like, well, we're supposed to find out what the Red Angel is. The Red Angel brought us here. It obviously wants us to do something, so. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's a hand-wave. I think it's it's his real motivation, right? Yeah. So, you know, if they're there, to find out about the Red Angel, and you know, if if he advances his main goal by violating the Prime Directive, then that's. I mean, this happens to Kirk a lot, right? Mm-hmm. The reason he violates the Prime Directive is that he's got some important reason, not because he's curious and like, or uh, you know, just like I don't like this society. Let's tinker with it. <laughs> you know, it's it's typically stuff like. Um, this is a stagnant society controlled by a robot, and it's right. You know, it's it's not how things are supposed to be, right? Where like a computer runs everything, or the Klingons are given weapons to the other side. We got to give our side weapons, right? So you know he's got reasons. He's got you know some kind of this is what the story's about motivation, mm-hmm. and the prime directive is an obstacle in the in a narrative sense. And, you know, anytime you have more than one value where you can't just take one value and elevate it to 11 and go, like people say safety first, right? These people who also drive cars and use power tools and, um, you know, uh, eat food that they haven't prepared. And there's all kinds of things that are risky, right? Go out in inclement weather, use the phone when there's lightning outside. You know, safety's really like, I don't know, fourth or fifth, right? It's important, yeah. but it's certainly not first. Because if it was first, you wouldn't drive cars. Mm-hmm. Right. And you'd probably stay in an awful lot more because the world would be scary. Because it's not safe. People go out and get killed. So the prime directive, while they call it the prime directive, it's really not their number one thing. Mm-hmm. It's their number four or five thing, and it has to compete with other kinds of missions. Now, it may be the case that these other things show up here and there and over there, but the prime directive is always in effect. Uh-huh. In one sense, that makes it number one. I guess that's true. That's true. So we get this. So we, there's then the scene where uh, Pike is talking to the Baul, and Saru like breaks his thing, and he's like, uh, "No, you can't talk to me like that. I'm not, you know, yours to be returned." And they they say to him, "You don't even know what you are." And so at that moment, 
here's what I was thinking. I wrote it down. I thought for a moment that Kelpians became the Ba'ul. That's where cool I thought idea. this was going, right? That was that would have been really neat, you know, like he was going to yeah. go up there, find his father, you know. He was like, well, this is what we become, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because uh, many reviews I read thought the same thing as well. I was like, man, I thought I came up with a good idea, but everybody else went there as well. Well, you know, it could be sometimes it's like they thought of that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's make it look like it's a caterpillar butterfly situation in an episode about the butterfly effect. Yeah. <laughs> and then just like, you know, pull the rug out. and Although it is in a certain sense a caterpillar butterfly since they go from being little leaf eaters to being baul eaters. Right. One thing I thought was interesting throughout the episode is, is that the uh, the technology, specifically like those little like things that were flying around, Baul technology does look pretty advanced. You know, so the, I thought that that was a really interesting. Again, I know that they were keeping the Kelpians down, but it's just really interesting that they have all this like amazing technology that's just been hidden from the uh, from the poor Kelpians. They have exocomps. A uh, what? Exocomps. I don't know what that is. So in Next Generation, there's an episode where someone has invented this uh, engineer's aid tool, and it becomes sentient, and then it starts like refusing to go down a tube, and then they think it's broken, but then at some point Data realizes, no, they're sentient, and then the one of the exo, or maybe more than one of the exocomps, you know, sacrifices himself to save the humans when there's a radiation leak or something along the lines. Oh wow. So I thought this was an interesting, from a storytelling standpoint, we have the scene where uh, now uh, Saru is on the Ba'ul ship, and they bring Sarana up from the uh, planet. And so it's it's interesting, because they in one shot, they kind of set up like the two Kelpians now, right? We got our original fear-based Kelpie who's on the floor. She's like, oh, my God, what are these things? And then we got, you know, Saru, who's now like all tough guy, you know, standing I'm going to bust up. it up. Yeah, exactly. Breaking out of his bond, you know, his bonds and knocking the things down and doing a lot of damage, honestly. It's like, oh, okay, I didn't know he was quite so strong. That's crazy. They talk about how strong he is in the first season. Oh, did they? Yeah. Or Carlos talking about it. Like, how come, like, humans are the weaklings of the galaxy? Right, yeah. So we got the return of the crew member Arium, the row body half. We don't know what she exactly she is. Her story hasn't been told, but uh, she's there helping Burnham and Tilly. We talked to her. We talked about her earlier this season. I thought that was really cool when uh, when his new set of I guess they're not threat ganglia anymore. I don't know what they are, missile ganglia or something. Yeah. They, like, fire at the Baul. I was like, okay, that's pretty neat. I like that. And it turns out that the Baul are our frail, right? So it's kind of a play on. I think they've done this a few times in Trek, where we think that the good guy, you know, that we think there's a good guy and a bad guy, and it turns out we were actually wrong. It was the other way wrong. It's not quite that. Obviously, the Ba'ul have uh, done bad things. But, you know, it's that they're just such a frail and uh, physically, you know, unimposing uh, uh, creature, species, thank you, that's the word I'm looking for, that, you know, it, it would be easy easy for the new Kelpians, the 
post Valhari, you know, Kelpians to take them over and destroy them. But so I thought that that was a really interesting idea. That whole spin that they took on that was really cool. It was also interesting. One of the, uh, I think that this was in IGN. Uh, we're, we're back now talking about the scene where uh, Pike and Tilly and Burnham are all deciding like, okay, these are the things we're going to go. We're going to make the Valhari, you know, uh, we're going to make the all the uh, Kelpians go through the Valhari. And he wrote that this is a massively consequential action. Wait, massively consequential actions are proposed, decided on and executed in a matter of minutes. I really thought felt that too. I really felt like all of a sudden this whole thing is like, we're not going to stop and discuss like, because I felt like that would be a very Star Trek thing to do. You know what I mean? Let's wait a minute. Let's stop and talk about the moral implications about what we're about to do. Instead, it's just like, no, we're going to do this. Okay. I'm sorry. No one's going to stop us. Uh, sorry, Pike. You just sit down and watch it all happen. Like he does. And uh, we're just going to do this. And all of these Valhari are going to go through, uh, all these Kelpians are going to go through the Valhari. Okay, cool. So one of the things that I think we've seen on discovery much more, than other Star Treks, right? Mm -hmm. Is that sometimes these discussions happen after, right? So in a classic Star Trek, we've got a moral dilemma. Kirk sits down in the briefing room with all of his officers. You know, Spock gives this kind of interesting take based on logic. And uh, Bones is like, oh, my God, how can you think that? That's crazy. Uh, it's got to be this other way. And maybe Sue's got some, you know, interesting historical or tactical thing. And, uh, you know, other like officer of the week says something interesting. And Kirk's like, hmm. All right. You know, and uh, then they they do the thing. Right. Right. And what happens in Discovery a lot of times is it's some character frequently, Michael Burnham, hmm. runs off and does something. And then afterwards, they have to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And Burnham wonders whether or not it was the right thing. But, you know, it was necessary because, uh, but it has implications. And then we can talk about those. Yeah. And in one sense, the whole series works that way, right? Because all of season one, Michael Burnham decides, oh, we have to use the Vulcan hello with the Klingons. Yep. And then pays the consequence of it. Uh, you know, it, it, I mean, we still say, that you know well there was the war and you started it and, you know <laughs> I mean, that's still a thing right i think i think there yeah. was a a reference to it that pike made so i i i think we're not done with what happened with the kelpians i think there's going to be talk about it obviously saru will talk about it he'll have his uh i think that um if, if you know when there are negative implications, people will talk to Burnham about it, and maybe yeah. Burnham will talk about it. I think Burnham's going to back her friend because that's the kind of character she is. So she's yeah. going to she's not going to let Saru be like, you know, I, I think I screwed up by helping you. Uh, that was a mistake. Yep. I'm not doing Oops. that again. Yeah, my bad. No, instead she's going to stick with stick with Saru. But I, I don't. That... I know that we've had the end of the conversations. Yeah, I, I hope you're right about that. I hope that somewhere down the line we get another episode that uh, deals directly with this and whether or not that Starfleet fallout or how it ends up working. Uh, I definitely think we need to come back and see that there are consequences to uh, whatever happens here. So it's funny, Pike never really questions anything that's happening until he's like, but we're not actually going to destroy the Ba'ul, right? Like, we're going to... 
Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Because that would be bad. That would be going way past our, our, the Prime Directive, for sure. There is a sense in which it feels like he is along for the ride rather than yeah. captain of the ship. But it's kind of nice here. I like how Saru like steps up. This might be easier said than done, of course, and uh, maybe that's what we'll see in the future. But you know, Saru is speaking for the Kelpians when he says that uh, we'll be able to move past our baser instincts, which is what uh, the Baul called them. So uh, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe. Hopefully. Uh, and then at this point, Saru sees the Red Angel, which is uh, interesting because I. It's funny because the way they show him to us is how we end up he later hearing is how uh, Saru saw it. And uh, definitely it looks like a humanoid in some kind of advanced suit saving the Kelpians from genocide, which is nice. But this, uh, I think that this kind of sadly removes the question of faith, right? I mean, now it's not going to be some sort of supernatural ang angel. Um, I mean, I guess ultimately it's not, you know, it was never going to be a... Uh, 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 some supernatural is going to end up being an alien of some kind, I guess. But even still, it's like now we're taking faith out of it. We, the whole last episode, we're talking about faith. Now in this episode, it's like, ah, it's some kind of crazy thing, possibly from the future, who's coming in to uh, save all these people. Why? We don't know. I did see a funny, really funny meme online, too, that said uh, the uh, number one contender for who the Red Angel might be was... Uh, Quark's uh, nephew. Uh, <laughs> is it Nod? Nog. Yeah, Nog. Yes, Nog. Yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. I also like, too, that when uh, at the end of the episode, when Serana leaves, she, uh, she says to Saru, it's kind of a nice little makeup moment for them. And uh, but she says that uh, she leaves with the realization that Saru didn't leave the planet because of his fear, but because of hope, which I like that. That's great. That sounds like, you know, Star Trek as That's we right. know it. It's leaving it a little uplifting. Let's talk for a minute about Ash here, right? So Ash is just the voice of, like, dissent this whole time. You know, both Burnham and, and Pike are wanting to believe that the Red Angel is here for good. And Ash, uh, in typical, you know, backroom, the... Uh, not exactly what I wanted to say, but, you know, the uh, dark side of the uh, the Starfleet is like, no, I mean, what if he uses this power against us? What if he turns on us and doesn't? So uh, it's interesting, Ash, in this one. Uh, I also think that, you know, sometimes it's going to look like, oh, he's a Klingon. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, he's not full of the Federation hopefulness. Yeah. Well, we also find out, too, he's kind of torn apart still, right, because of the war. Yeah. You know, so sometimes, you know, especially we're at like 10 years away from classic Trek in which we get a, I sense, a Vulcan that's much more, it's been humanized for 100 years or whatever, right? The right. optimism of humans has this hope. Has a, you know, a, a bunch of Tillies went to Vulcan and... <laughs> So, uh, you know, it's it's sometimes the even Spock would sometimes, you know, well, it's uh, it's it's an efficient society. There's no want. There's no hunger. Sure, it's oppressive and you know, basically totalitarian. But it's got its upside. Right. That was a you know, Spock would sometimes take that role, right? 
Um, and then when someone would say, yeah, but uh, they're oppressed and there's it's run by a you know computer, but there is no war. And, you know, your species almost destroyed itself with war. I think there's something to be said for this. And you're like, well, you know. So older, like Enterprise era Vulcans, you know, feel much more Romulan, right, in uh -huh. their, their darkness. And I think sometimes, you know, if you think about the difference between kind of classic Trek, uh, Sarek, and the Sarek we've seen in Discovery, right? Right. He's not so much the wise old man who's going to help you, you know, get to the good ending, right? Mm. He seems like he's, you know, he's got a, a little more of that flavor of, of menace and I'm, I'm keeping secrets and I have secret agendas and that kind of stuff. So, of course, you know, Burnham can play that role as well. I think we've seen a little bit of you know, yeah. Burnham being uh, not, in one sense, she's struggling with her humanity and trying to get there and embracing some hope. And I think that's one of the things that she finds appealing about Tilly, yeah. right? So uh, one of the scenes in Fantastic Beasts, the second one, The Crimes of Grindelwald, that I find really powerful is the scene on the bridge when, you know, Dumbledore says to, uh, to Newt, the thing I like about you is that when you do something, you're, you're never making a calculation about power. It's always about what is right. Right? Mm -hmm. And, of course, Dumbledore is the mastermind here, right? He's the mm -hmm. one who, who gets Newt involved in dealing with Grindelwald. He's got other fish in the sea when the you know, police come and like try to roust him in the classroom where he's, you know, he, you know, the students are like, but he's our best teacher. And uh, Dumbledore saying things like, uh, you know, you can watch me and my friends, but you're never going to find us conspiring against you. We want the same things. We want to, you know, con uh, deal with uh, Grindelwald. So you, you need the, the mastermind Dumbledore, right? Mm -hmm. Who I have argued before is an INTJ. Right. Mm. But and I think Newt's command is probably an uh, INFP could be an INFJ. Right? Hard to I, he, he feels awfully peeish, but I don't really have enough uh, to be conclusive on that. But he's he's I think he's basically motivated by by ethics and morality. And and in a sense, it reveals how you need them both. Right. Right. You need the Spock the cold calculating, but you, you need the McCoy or the Tilly or mm -hmm. the, you know, the hopeful, optimistic human. And uh, I think that tension is, we, we got lots of it in Discovery, right? Yeah. Whether it's the more menacing Sarek, whether it's going to be Ash, sometimes Burnham. Burnham can be on either side of that, right? Burnham is right. walking that. Uh, so I, I think it's fun. It, that's my next note is about Burnham, who she's not afraid to use logic. She's not a say, you know, afraid to be like, well, you know, Ash might be right. Uh, you, you know, he's he is powerful. He could use it against us. You never know. But it does seem like overall she's got the faith in humanity, you know, that at least is in regards to like she was following the Starfleet way. Right. Which, of course, is very hopeful towards humanity. So, right. I, 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 I definitely agree with you.
So let's get into our quick Culber conversation here. He's got a, a new body. The scar that he had uh, had for many years was gone. Uh, his DNA has basically been, you know, renewed in his body. So again, and his nervous system isn't even like working right because he feels uncomfortable in his body and uh, all of these things. So of course, you know, begs that age old question of, you know, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be who you are? Like is having a new body suddenly mean I'm a different person? It's all those kind of cool Star Trek questions, which I'm sure we'll get into as the Culber story uh, continues. I did think, though, it was interesting. You know, we've been talking about the short tracks. We've, you know, two of them have sort of played very easily into uh, what's been going on in the main story. But we also had that that the scar thing happen in Calypso, if you remember, because he was like, oh, yeah, the, she, I kept your scar for you because it looked like you wanted it, you know, or whatever. Right. And so it's weird to get this double scar thing that's also happening. So, uh Good old Katie uh, Burt from Den of Geek, her wild theory about who she thinks the Red Angel is, is that it's like Discovery from Calypso era, who's like, you know, coming back to do all these like super good things for uh, for the Discovery and its crew. So I thought that was a really interesting idea. So uh, into some of those reviews, Katie Burt, again, Den of Geek, makes a great point, And she wasn't the only one who I saw say this talking about, you know, making the entire planet of the Kelpians uh, on, on Kaminar, uh, you know, go through the Valhare. It says, uh, Saru decides to induce the Valhare and every Kelpian on the planet. She says, not going to lie. This is a massive decision for Saru to make on behalf of the Kelpian people without the consent of the Kelpian people. Ideally, there would have been room for a negotiation process without the forced Valhare of all the Kelpians. They would have to. They would have the space to decide for themselves if they want to go through this process or just to let it happen nat naturally. Mediation of this kind of process is exactly the kind of job the Federation is designed for. Where, where are all the counselors on this ship? Yeah. She said that last week too. I love that. It's also, uh, you know, there's no real diplomat, is there? Yeah, right. We don't have a Picard on this. I, I mean, I guess in a way it is, it's Pike. Pike's been, you know, especially when he likes to, as he's talking to the Ba'ul at the beginning of this episode and a couple of the other ones, he's definitely been the guy who's been treading the water between uh, the species. Right. But he's he's like Kirk, a guy who's capable of finding the peaceful solution. But he's he's also a man of action. Right. Mm -hmm. In a way that. uh like, you know, a Picard or certainly a, a Troy or a McCoy, uh, even a, like the later Spock, right? When he's more of a diplomat than a science officer. Uh -huh. Yeah, there's nobody really. I mean, Saru used to be, but it was actually, I think, more out of fear right now that he's Mr. Aggression. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Certainly in this episode. I mean, he may revert back to. Obviously not out of a sense of fear, but out of a sense of morality or whatever else that. Yeah. Well, now he doesn't. I, I think, too, like he doesn't have the anger of what's happened, you know, of what he's found out it happened on his home planet. So now that he's shed that, solved that problem, he can get back to being, you know, good old Saru that we know and love. It's also Sweet the, Saru. Yeah. It's also the case that when people leave an equilibrium, 
seeking like a better equilibrium. In a sense, they're thrown into chaos, right? So uh -huh. you, le you leave a job for a new job that you think will offer better prospects or new opportunities or more money or... And, but you give up a lot of familiarity. So now like you have to meet new people and maybe things aren't exactly as you thought they were. And, you know, see what you have to do is you have to kind of construct a new equilibrium, right? Uh -huh. And sometimes it turns out it was a mistake, right? And sometimes it just requires working through that chaos to establish, you know, to, to make new friends, to build a network of supporters and, you know, to, to figure out how you get things done in this new environment. But other times it's like, nope, this was a mistake. I shouldn't have given up my old, old job. I, you know, I didn't need the money or whatever. And it, it could turn out that while the long run, the arc, the end of the arc for Saru and his, what he's done might be better. There also may be points at which people are scared, uh, you know, people are uncertain. They've lost. They've certainly lost something that, right. like Saru, they feel was essential to who they were. They lost a part of their identity. Yeah. And this, this may lead to some, you know, more than just minor neuroses, right? Yeah. And he's going to feel responsible for that. Yeah. One more thing I stole from uh, Katie Burt there. Denna Geek was, uh, she's talking about Ash and his very, you know, different take on things. She says, however, he is missing a vital point. Whatever happens in the future, the Red Angel is the Red Angel is more or less commandeering Federation resources to help carry out their plan. Without Discovery's arrival, she says on Kaminar, none of this would have happened. Dun dun dun. So what is you know, it's like that definitely gives a different motivation possibility to what the Red Angel's been doing. I like that Katie, that Katie Bird. She's cool. All right, IGN said this. Discovery's second season is less of a window into this pre-Kirk era of Starfleet and more of an origin story explaining how a subdivision of Starfleet as brazenly cynical and circumspect as Section 31 can even exist in the first place. Because, it turns out, no one's actually facing any consequences for breaking the rules that bind Starfleet and the Federation together so far. Th so far. It's the perfect breeding ground for this shadowy operations of Section 31. I thought this was an interesting take because, uh, I mean, maybe it's doing it on purpose, right? We, we got this whole idea of like, well, you know, so far there's been no consequences to bending the rules of giving, you know, the people on New Eden this new energy source so that their, you know, church can bright again. There's been no, we don't know yet if there are going to be any consequences to breaking, you know, the, the prime directive here. But it's interesting because, again, maybe we are just building towards what we know of Starfleet in the original series. Which even as we found in our watching of the original series, like Starfleet still isn't perfect, right? I mean, it's still right. not next generation Starfleet. Well, and even next generation Starfleet is full of a bunch of actors who come on and like are like, ah, like I already mentioned the Pegasus, right? Right. So, but I think one of the, the things of Star Trek is that the good guys start on the bridge, right? And then they, you emanate outward 
in slightly more diluted goodness, right? So the, the best characters, the characters who are going to do the right thing most often uh, are going to represent hope and so forth, who are going to give. So like there's uh, two different kind of summations, right? There's the Kirk summation and there's the Picard summation. And, uh, you know, they're, they're both kind of optimistic views of, of humans and what they're, what they're all about and the Federation. And, uh, but I think it's, it's tightest. It's, it's most reliably seen on the bridge. And then the further you get away, the more it's like, you guys are kind of shady over there, at least compared to our beloved heroes. Interesting, interesting. Trekcore uh, po uh, posted this in their review. With the signal that now appears over Kaminar, any notion that the signal's locations are random has essentially been put to rest. The question now, as debated between Captain Pike and back-in-uniform Ash Tyler, is whether or not the Red Angel is benevolent. Does it direct would-be saviors to places in need of emergency assistance, or does it cause the emergencies themselves? It's kind of that same question that uh, Katie Bird asked, you know. Is it writing the, especially if he's from the future, is he writing a wrong that wasn't initially righted, you know? You could almost wonder if this is going to be like prime Spock from, <laughs> from, you know, JJ verse or something. Fixing some stuff. That's who the Red Angel turns out to be. It turns out to be old Spock. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're just a little past when we can get Leonard Nimoy to reprise yes, one more time. I know. <laughs> no, nuts. So, of course, now in regards to the question of the the Prime Directive, like we've been asking this whole episode, uh, Trekcor actually reached out to the writers of this episode and said, uh, hey, explain this. What's going on here? And here's the response. Captain Spike's decision to send down a team to Kaminar isn't so much the result of a change in General Order 1 itself as it is a difference in circumstances and in the captain who is interpreting the rule. In The Brightest Star, Jojo was the lieutenant asking permission to make an exception for Saru. Here, Pike, as the captain, and he's on an express mission to investigate the signals. Therefore, he makes a judgment call to carefully make contact anew knowing that the kelpians have been aware of the existence of warp technology for 20 years now after all the baul have become warp capable but only in order to pursue his stated mission so i guess it's kind of like we were saying that he's just uh sorry uh just like we were saying is that he's like well our mission is to you know talk to the red angel i guess that's what we gotta do Two other quick little tidbits here before we uh, wrap up this this uh, this episode. We of course know from the original Brightest Star short trek that uh, when Giorgio lands on the planet, that she's actually on the Shinzo, and we know this because the shuttle says S H Z. But this has been rewritten in this episode because Burnham actually says that she was serving aboard the Archimedes. And when we again get that same shot of the shuttle lifting off, the SHZ has now been removed. Dun, dun, dun. 
bad things that work here, apparently. Uh, last bit here, which uh, comes from Memory Alpha as well, is that last one is uh, Saru beamed to the surface of Kaminar while the ship was operating under a red alert condition. He should not have been able to do this due to the shield limitations of the transporter beam. So I think this has happened to us before where we had somebody yes. beam down through the shields that was in red alert. It's like, eh, it's convenient. We just need to, he's got to go now. It's fine. Uh, that is it. That really wraps up all of my notes here. Uh, anything uh, you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to? Well, we've talked about a lot this episode. And I really like that that these episodes are dealing with the, the kind of core ideas of Star Trek. And there's a lot to talk about. So, yeah, I think we've, we've hit all of our notes. And uh, I'm having a lot of fun watching this season two. Yes, me too. And finally... It looks like we might be getting some Spock in the next episode. Oh. <laughs> possible. It's very possible. We're going to Vulcan. We know that for sure. And we see him in that trailer. So I'm like, maybe he's actually going to appear in this episode, or is this going to be another stupid flashback? Dang it. Just have to find out. Well, I'm excited. That's all I know. We're going to wrap it up for this week. As always, my name is Matt coming to you from Austin and saying goodbye from Planet Houston is my brother Ken. Say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. There we go, and we will see you all from Vulcan next week. Bye.